Cruise Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. How are you doing? Good. And I really like uh, when Paul explains what the show's about. So, uh, Dr. Paul Williams, are you with us? I'm with you. Good. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Paul refuses to say what the show's about. No, I I had a hard time remembering for a second. Um, (laughs) uh, We're a podcast, if I remember correctly, that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. That is true. And with us tonight is special guest host, Dr. Christopher Chu. Hey, I'm a guest host now. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, whatever, it's man. A party. Dr. Chu, would you like to tell us uh, about this episode? Well, I'm excited to bring this uh, valuable episode to our listeners because uh, medical toxicology has been an interest of mine since medical school. My first solid introduction was during my toxicology elective um, in residency. I met Dr. Rusniak, Rusiniak. Um, while I was doing my um, elective, people have said that he looks like he sounds like Seth Rogen and looks like Steve Martin and <laughs> sings like Sanjaya. Hmm. <laughs> and as an avid medical podcast listener, um, I came upon his podcast, The Dantastic Mr. Tox and Howard Show, uh, where he and his uh, partner in crime, Dr. Greller, also known as Notorious Ampersand Howard, uh, talk about all sorts of subjects in the field of medical toxicology. Uh, Scott Weingard once said that Dr. Greller looked like a Skid Row Santa. Unfortunately, he <laughs> his beard is no more, and uh, he was once told he looks like Eddie Money. That is a fantastic introduction. Did they want me to read their actual professional CVs after that? Uh, after that, um, <laughs> you know, flattering introduction you just gave them, Chris. <laughs> Um, they were either way. You could we could just say that uh, their full bios can be on the website or. In the notes. Uh, you know what, Chris? I think I'm going to read read a bio for them. Read the bio. Yeah. Okay, oh do it. Doctor. It's happening. Doctor Howard Greller is an affiliated medical professor in clinical medicine at Cooney School of Medicine, or uh, City University of New York, as I'm told. He completed a fellowship in medical toxicology. He's the director of research and medical toxicology at the Department of Emergency Medicine at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx, New York. In addition to spending time podcasting with Dan, Howard is also the co-host of the Emergency Medicine Show on Sirius XM's Doctor Radio, which is channel 110 from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. He has an eclectic mind, a fondness for all things coffee, and likes to educate people about this toxic world. Dr. Dan Rusiniak is a professor of emergency medicine and an adjunct professor of pharmacology and toxicology and neurology. He joined the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine in 2001. Dr. Rusiniak is the medical director of the Indiana Poison Center and the division chief for medical toxicology. He has sustained a successful research career with multiple NIH grants addressing amphetamine toxicity, drug-induced hyperthermia, and synthetic drug detection. He has authored over 70 articles, 13 textbook chapters, and edited four books on various toxicology topics. So, uh, yes, they are quite qualified to teach us about toxicology. 
This was a really fun conversation, so I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Hey, Chris, did you ever hear about the toxicologist, what he told the beet farmer who overdosed? What? That he might die of beets, but he's willing to beat it out of him. <laughs> okay, Stuart. If Matt, if you could just do me a favor and just leave that long, painful pause <laughs> in between there before anyone reacted to that, that would, that would make my day. <laughs> just let that linger. I think we should just start here. Uh, we joining, have a podcast of just us talking about podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> joining joining us on air tonight, we have Dr. Dan Rosiniak. I think I got it right there. Dan, is that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And also, Howard Greller. Hey. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us tonight. We have lots of toxicology questions, which is a topic that I know nothing about. But the the first thing we always want to ask is, is I want a one-liner from each of you. Dan, we'll start with you since your name is you first. Each of yous. Mm-hmm. I'm from Philly, so I'm allowed to. Okay. Utes. Two Utes. We're just two Utes. Uh, okay. Uh, let me see. Uh, so, um, eh, one-liner. Um, let's see. 49-year-old hillbilly toxicologist, uh, storyteller, father of three teens, and a lover of German girls from New Jersey. But I should probably say that not all German girls from New Jersey, just one. <laughs> just, okay. just one. Just one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, one line. Uh, ooh. Um, I, I'm not giving my age. A, uh, a lifetime <laughs> New Yorker and father of of two small girls, um, not the ones that Dan loves from Germany. Um, <laughs> I I love uh, all things one three seven trimethyl xanthine, and um, I'm making it my academic mission to catalog all of the. Holes in the human body and the things that people stuff in them. <laughs> Is that going to be a book? Yes. Uh, it's a pop-up book. It's a pop-up yeah, exactly. <laughs> a book. Not scratch and sniff. Orpus. No scratch and sniff on that. Pop-out book. Yeah. yeah. Does anyone else have a question for our distinguished guests? How about you, Chris? Oh, I got a couple of quick ones. So these are going to be, uh, you know, either or questions. So it's a multiple choice of two questions and I'll start with Howard first. Okay. So, you do that uh, because they're ER doctors. <laughs> <laughs> I got to consult somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so the first one for Howard is scorpion bite or scorpion sting. Oh, very, very controversial, but it, it I was schooled on this. It is a, it is a sting. Okay. Mm. okay. Dan, okay. I got my next one's for, uh, Brown recluse or MRSA spider? It's a spider. Ooh. It's, it's MRSA. It's always MRSA. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a MRSA spider. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's every spider. It's the only actual spider that bites people, unless you're in Australia. Okay. Right. Have you ever seen right. a scorpion sting causing a pancreatitis? No. 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 Why is everyone taught that? Like, because, for real. Uh, it's like Osler said it. Once he said right. it, it's it's forever in the books. <laughs> Was it from Trinidad or Madagascar? <laughs> Trinidad. Trinidad. I love okay. that movie. <laughs> or Madagascar. Really the same yeah, place, it really basically. doesn't matter. I, we could say anything. I could say, yeah, it's from Estonia. <laughs> We're Estonia. not fact checking anything. <laughs> only, there's only one doctor in Estonia that would say we don't have scorpions. So We're, We're going to get 10 emails just about that alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, okay, back to Howard. Yes, sir. Albutrin or tramadol? Oh, God. 
I uh, ooh, ooh boy. Um, How about together? Yeah, oh man, I, I think I would probably have to hate Wellbutrin more or yes. be afraid of it more. But uh, I really don't like Tramadone. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Howard. I hate Ilbutrin. Ilbutrin's the worst <laughs> drug out there. It is terrible. That's quite unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. And the last About one is ninety nine percent of Chris's patients are on it. <laughs> yeah. They are. They are totally. The last one for uh, for Dan is um, Tide Pod or thickened liquids. Ooh. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, thick liquids for sure. Safe. <laughs> safe. <laughs> safe. And and you know you can mix a lot more things with them. True. <laughs> That's true. true. Hmm. Paul, you want to ask about a book or something? No, Let- no. I feel like this is a good point to move on. I feel like we've. <laughs> I've got a sense of who we're dealing with now. I don't need to ask the book question. <laughs> <laughs> You're afraid to ask the book question. We are. We are ER doctors. Remember. Yeah. <laughs> what was. I'm actually kind of curious. What, what book would you recommend? Like Kama Sutra or, I mean, like, <laughs> who knows? For whom? I, yeah, I, I will be moderately serious for one second. And I think, and you probably have already talked about this in your podcast, but I think every physician should read American Sickness. Yeah. Actually, I, I'm not sure if we actually talked about that one, but that's a good book. Can you expound on that a little bit? It is essentially the financial aspects of healthcare. It is how healthcare mm-hmm. went from a profession to big business and every right. single aspect of it and why it is the way it is today. And it, it is, of course, the simple analogy of follow the money and that the reporter mm-hmm. from the New York Times does a brilliant job of following the money in healthcare, every bit of it from residencies to devices to pharma to hospitals to insurance companies right. every single bit of it and it's just a fascinating read to be particularly part of it because it starts yeah. to create a lot of aha moments in your daily life yeah Are you surprised i read that one matt it's, it's astounding actually i figured that's a good i figured good Stuart would have read that before howard did you have a book recommendation i mean not w- with such uh profound implications as dan but the the one that I've been sort of still chewing on in my head um, after reading it last year is the, the Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Mm. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I didn't get a chance to get the phonetic. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's just it's just a really uh, fascinating story of of why we do most of what we do and how we go about doing that and making changes to it. So and it's it's spelled Duhigg. Duhig, yeah. Duhig, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's right. That's right down your alley there, Matt. I I read his follow up book. To, I didn't read that one yet, but I read the follow up book, and it's really good. It's like bigger, faster, stronger, better, faster, stronger, something like that. But it's it's very useful. A uh, very useful book as well. And that's a great Daft Punk song. So yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. Daft Punk album. Yeah. I wanted to <laughs> ask you guys, since Paul's not asking his usual question, uh, a semi serious <laughs> question before we move hmm. on to the main topic. Dan and Howard, could you each tell us some great advice you received in your career, whether it was while you were a learner or as a teacher? Sure. Uh, I think I think advice for students, I don't know if I got it or I just learned it. Um, people will typically be more impressed with what you 
people will be more impressed with you admitting what you don't know than they will be with you pretending to know something you don't. And that is a really hard thing sometimes for, I think, medical students um, mm-hmm. to admit they don't know something. But truly, as a as a academic faculty, it is so refreshing to have a student be like, I don't know, instead of the pretending and because we all have pretty good BS detectors at, by this mm-hmm. point in our in our career. Absolutely. Unless they say, I don't know, and then they just continue to look down as they're texting someone. Yeah. That, that annoys the <laughs> yeah. heck out of me. I don't know, and I don't care. For the Starbucks coffee? Yeah. That That's right. Too. Don't do I'd that. rather hear, I don't know, and I care, please tell me. Yeah. And not just in a placating way. Patronizing way, rather. Right. Placating. Howard, any <laughs> words of wisdom from you? Uh, ooh, I'm trying to see something that's more generalizable. I mean, one of the things that early on in, and, and this is definitely much more applicable to emergency medicine than, than perhaps to internal medicine and be surprised the, the location. Well, maybe, um, it, it, just because the opportunities for us to do this are, are a little bit, uh, different is, is always, um, always to make an attempt, uh, to, Call someone after you've taken care of them. I see. Uh, I thought you were going so, to say always make it a tip to diagnose ACS. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Whatever two. you can do to jam medicine with an admission. Um, <laughs> did I say too much? The, the, I, the um, yeah, I, I think, you know, again, the practice patterns and the practice locations are very, very different. But one of the things that uh, I was sort of indoctrinated early on was pick a patient from a shift that you had an encounter with that may not have been perfect and, and call them sometime soon after and, and find out, you know, how it went for them and what potentially they thought that you could do better. And so follow learn. through, follow through. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I like that. I, uh, I think, did, didn't we hear that from, uh, Oh dear lord! Why am I forgetting his name? Scott Weingart. That yes, Scott Weingart. He's going no. to. I don't remember if he said that, but I I I can say that I think it's more my anxiety. But I've I've either discharged people from the ER that that they called me for an admission, or I've discharged people from the hospital when I still had a little bit of like too much anxiety. And then I've called them the next day just to be like, hey, how's it going? Uh, just want yeah. to make sure. Do you have any medication questions? Do you feel like you're dying? Uh, <laughs> you can Are come you back. Actually, I, I think it was English the, the, the ER medical director that I work with down here. He said that uh, the following day they review all the cases that got admitted and give like a one or two liner about what happened to them. That's part of their rounds is what it was. Ooh, wow. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's adjacent and to the, I, I like calling people back with normal labs, which is not something I'm good at doing all the time, but every so often... <laughs> If you check a patient and they have anxiety regardless of how they're coming across and you check something, you just call them back and say, hey, just want to let you know everything is perfectly fine. Like, I think that just even that goes a long way. So I think just benign follow through is a lot more powerful than we give it credit for, I think. I would yep. like to make one addition for because I know we have some people a little younger than even me on uh, listening. And I would say this. Uh, if you do call and leave a message, make sure you say this is not an emergency. This yes. is, <laughs> this is I am, everything is okay. I am really just calling to say hello with good news or whatever. But wise, make sure you identify words. it's not an emergency. Otherwise, make sure it's you're okay have, to leave a voicemail too first. <laughs> I may or may not have made the mistake of leaving some uh, voicemails without <laughs> specifying. I may or may not be dealing with that right now. Thank you, <laughs> Chris. Would you like to get us on on with the show here? 
All right. Well, we'll start with a clinical case from uh, Cashlack Memorial. So we have Mrs. K here, who's a 35-year-old female who presenting to the ED um, um, via EMS because she was found with altered mental status by her boyfriend at home. Uh, she's confused, but able to convey that she feels sick and nauseated. Um, her boyfriend says that she's got a history of depression and, and substance abuse, but she's been quote unquote clean for the last six months, uh, as far as he knows. Um, he does note that her depression is a little worsened recently because her sister recently overdied, uh, died from an overdose. Hmm. So I guess our first question would be like, how would you first approach this patient, especially in the ED? Howard, you, you just got off a shift, Howard. You just got off a shift. You got to do it. <laughs> so is this a um, is this a three-year-old with flu? Because uh, that's what I was just dealing with all oh, day. Oh, gosh. The, um, so I, I, think, I think the fundamental approach that uh, we use in the emergency room is the same as we approach most toxicology patients is, is trying to – toxicology is really just – disordered physiology from something external to the body. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to identify the, A, the immediate threats to life and health, and then B, try and put together a picture that will necessarily point you not to the specific substance, but to something that uh, you need to look out for or something you need to intervene on. And by sort of following that same approach with each patient, you, you build a picture. Um, now, a, a lot of times people are, are taught toxidromes. And I, I think as a, as a sort of a public service, I think toxidromes are a nice framework to think about things. But I think people get hung up on the fact that it, everything has to fit into a little box. And that's where, that's where the, the power of, of that kind of thinking gets lost. So, you know, for example, if we said altered mental status, fever, maybe a little bit of stiffness in the neck, you guys would think of what? Meningitis. Meningitis, right. But that also could be neuroleptic malignant syndrome. That could be sympathomimetic toxicity. That could be salicylate. Toxicity. It could be a whole host of things. It doesn't mean that it is any one thing, but it mm. puts you on the right path. Um, and and there's there's nothing. I don't know, Dan, if I should if I should you know give the keys to the kingdom, but there's there's nothing special <laughs> about about toxicology. It's just it's just it's really just applying physiology to the to the patient in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of this patient, you know, you start with the basics. You start with Vital signs, airway, breathing, circulation, maybe an assessment of, uh, of neurologic function, uh, rapid glucose assessment, um, and, then, and then get into a, a detailed exam. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Howard. I, I like to – I think one of the reasons I love toxicology and the reason a lot of people love toxicology is – and I think you guys will appreciate this – is it's, it's one of the last true diagnostic specialties, right? Yeah. I mean there is – very few tests that we order, but we spend a lot of time. I mean, people make fun of us you know, <laughs> on, our cons on our consult service. They, 
they all say, you guys walk around, you drink coffee, and you just stand by the bedside. And, and there's some truth to that. But what I like to tell them is that it's, we're standing there, but we're observing, right? I mean, there's so much that you can glean from a patient just by being at their bedside. And a lot of our exam after years, and, and you're right that we look at toxidromes, but so much of it's just pattern recognition and that you get really, really good at pattern recognition. And you walk in the room, and you're like, that person's anticholinergic. And I can't tell you the number of times one of me or my partners have, and I, Howard's probably the same, have made the diagnosis before you even got in the room. You saw the patient across the room and you know you got a <laughs> consult. Maybe it was an overdose. Maybe it was encephalitis. Maybe it was like... I think they're anticholinergic. And then the great thing is you start with a bias. And then if you're good, you spend a lot of time looking at the patient and seeing if there are things that refute it. Because that's the thing we run into. The problem with toxidromes is it's really easy to see what you want to see. And so really good, I think, toxicologists start off with the idea it could be this and then try to convince themselves it's not. And when they can't, then then they're done. Okay. So what would we do in this patient? Yeah, like Howard said, a lot of vitals. We'd order the the routine. We order, at least I do, very few labs. Yep. A basic metabolic panel I would get on this person. I would get a Tylenol. I get an aspirin, although you could argue you really don't need an aspirin, but I get it because I'm lazy and I don't want to think that hard. Um, <laughs> and I would get an EKG and probably a pregnancy test just to figure out the number of patients I potentially have. Yeah. And in I, I would, most patients, I would that's maybe it. a blood gas for this one. Because of the altered mental status, you would get the blood gas too. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the one of the things that we like to talk about while we're standing around drinking our coffee are acid base problems and disturbances. And you know, I, the, again, the blood gas is very much a a crutch because it's a quick rapidly resulted test that does have a lot of information on it. Um, more often than not, it's it's completely normal in, in most circumstances. But, you know, as a surrogate, for example, like what Dan was saying, a salicylate, you know, an acid-based disturbance that you could see on a blood gas quickly would be back very, uh, very soon, whereas a salicylate level, especially if it was elevated, would be delayed. So... Mm. When you are walking into the bedside uh, or drinking coffee at the patient's bedside, staring <laughs> at them, uh, now you got it. What are you? What are you paying attention to? That maybe the average uh, physician who's not a toxicologist would probably just kind of gloss over as they're just sort of eyeballing the patient to run off and complete their morning pre rounds. Complete the coffee. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think a, I, I think a couple things that I might do that's slightly different is I look at heart rate variability for one, right? So if, for instance, if they're bradycardic and I go in and they're sleepy and I wake them up and their heart rate doesn't change, that tells me something, right? It tells me that there's potentially an agent on board that's preventing a normal physiologic response to being alert, i.e. an increase in heart rate. Or if a patient's sleeping and I wake them up and their heart rate shoots up from 98 to 120, That tells me that they don't probably have normal compensatory systems because waking up doesn't usually result in a heart rate that increase of about 30 beats per minute. And so that might be more likely to be like, for instance, an anticholinergic drug or something like that. So I look at variability in things as they as as I go in the room and they respond. In addition, a lot of what I look at is what they are doing. Are they awake? Are they asleep? And if they're talking, how are they talking like? 
So, we, I mean, we could do a detailed neurologic exam, but you can listen to a patient talk either to you or somebody else in the room and get a ton of information. Are they talking about things that are logical? Are they articulate? Do they have dysarthria? Are they mumbling? Are their lips dry? Right. And speech patterns are, I think, something that toxicologists notice really well. Like we can probably – you could probably take just recordings, audio recordings, so we could tell you anticholinergic speech. We could tell you sympathomimetic speech. We could tell you a whole variety of different uh, patients just based on how they speak because in many ways well, that's really – that's right. That, that's a re- reflection in many ways of their general neurologic function. Yeah. Hmm. I, think, I think the one thing that, that I've sort of trained myself to, to scrutinize a little bit more – um, is, is respiratory pattern and, and rate, um, which is, you know, again, the, the, the forgotten vital sign, um, right. You, you walk in the room, you measure one breath and then multiply it by 18 or whatever your multiplier is, right. Um, but so, so, but looking, looking at the, the pulmonary dynamics that you can see, um, also gives a lot of information again about acid base, potential issues um, and, and, you know, some, some other aspects of, of what's going on with them. So, you know, it's, it, and it doesn't take very long to, to get a sense of normal, abnormal, and then to, to look a little bit closer. Are you like getting out a stopwatch and actually like looking at your watch and counting the breaths or do you have some other, are you checking accessory muscles? If you could get granular on that just for the audience. Yes. So, so I mean, the first is is just looking and and looking at whether or not it appears to be normal or abnormal, and you can you can tell pretty quickly whether or not someone is sort of either tachypnic or bradypnic. You can tell if someone is taking normal tidal volume breaths or if they're hyperpnic and taking very large volume breaths. You know, it, there there are. And that goes sort of uh, hand in hand also with with some of what Dan was talking about in terms of how they're speaking, right? Is someone able to carry on a conversation with you um, or or is there a uh, restriction because they are unable to to maintain the, their respiratory rate? Um, you know, like a, like a bad asthmatic, if you were mm-hmm. looking at that. And then once once I have a, a sort of a general sense of the pattern – and the rate, then I can, you know, take, take a look at my watch and count or look at if they're on a monitor, look at how it correlates with, with what the monitor is picking up and see if that's an accurate reflection. Um, and then depending on how much more I want to get into the weeds, then, then yeah. And then it'll be looking at whether or not their accessory muscle, uh, being used or putting my hands on and trying to actually see if the pattern is what is being measured. You lost me with touching the patient. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I you have to put- my next question, which is how often do you go in for the axillary sweat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I would even add to that to, to, in, you know, when you look at the respiratory rate and you're usually on a monitor, like right? if they're hypoxic, are they responding appropriately? Right. Right. I mean, like we forget a lot of times that the human physiology is designed to survive, right? And when people fail to have normal physiologic responses or have exaggerated responses, it's not always, but often because there's a toxin on board that's screwing something up. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about uh, normal physiology before we start to talk about specific agents. If you could, uh, Dan, since you brought it up, can you maybe measure, mention just like 
the anticholinergic system versus and the sympathomimetics uh, that you were mentioning before, the sympathetic nervous system that you were mentioning? Yeah, and so... Sort of in broad strokes. That's right. So I'll go over a couple things that, that people learn in med school that are true, um, and then a couple things that get muddied up in reality, right? So when we talk about anticholinergics, really, semantically, we're talking about anti-muscarinics. So we're talking about drugs that block muscarinic receptors, not nicotinic. And the reason is is because anticholinergic people aren't paralyzed, <clears throat> which is part of the neuromuscular junction system. So we're really looking at anti-muscarinic drugs. And a pure anti-muscarinic, which there's not many, but say atropine, which is a pretty good or probably the closest example we have to it, right? That will give you the classic like textbook example, right? And so what I will usually describe to people is that the things that become most noticeable are that everything in your body that makes juice is blocked. And that's because almost all glandular secretions are controlled through parasympathetic systems. So a dry mouth, a dry armpit, are pretty indicative of anticholinergic. The other things that are pretty indicative is the cardiac system. And that's because when we look at the heart, the heart and the eye are two examples. There's others, but that have dual innervation, parasympathetic and sympathetic. So if you block the parasympathetic by blocking the muscarinic receptors in the heart, what you get is a sympathetic system that does not have a counterbalance. And so they get tachycardic. And so one of the most reliable things we see in anticholinergic syndrome is tachycardia. The eye would be another good example in a pure anticholinergic system, right? You go to the eye doctor, they dilate your eye. What do they put in it? Atropine. They want to make your pupil small. What do they put in it? A cholinergic agent like pilocarpine or a stimulant. Um, so you get these kind of dual systems. So, but the reality of it is, is that the thing that's probably most reliable are in a big anticholinergic is dry mouth, altered mental status, and tachycardia, and not pupils. And and I bring that up a lot because a lot of the times I think people are really focused on finding a dilated pupil in an anticholinergic syndrome. But the problem is, is that a lot of drugs that have anticholinergic or anti-muscarinic effects have other drug effects as well. Mm -hmm. And some of those other drug effects are sympatholytic, particularly. So they, mm. so if you've got a drug, say, for instance, quetiapine, right, which everyone's on, for God's sakes, I have no Whee! idea why. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like the quetiapine rep. Because he like, can't sleep without it. I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So Neither can the farm reps. You know, so it's an interesting drug. It's a decent alpha blocker. So in some ways, the sympatholytic, but its metabolites also a really good anti-muscarinic. And so it can depend on what their pupils are, right? So sometimes their pupils can be kind of dilated. Sometimes they can be normal. Sometimes maybe even a little sleep, a little small. So from my standpoint, when I look at anticholinergic, the most reliable things are dry mouth, tachycardia, and the neurologic stuff. And I will give you an example of the neurologic stuff, and then I'll let Howard talk sympathomimetic. The best way to describe the neurologic findings of an anticholinergic, what we would call central anticholinergic, is to somewhat just kind of act it out. And that people are typically, if it's a pure agent awake, they're going to be looking around the room, and almost inevitably they're going to be picking at an either invisible objects in the air or their biox or their bed sheets, and they're going to be mumbling. So you're going to walk in the room and you're going to be like, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Johnson. They're going to be like, hey. And you're like, what? I can't understand. Why are you here today? I'm here because my brother. 
and they're just going to mumble off. And you're going to look at their mouth and you're like, holy crap, their mouth is dry. And you're going to notice that they will not stop picking at their biox or at the air and they're going to mumble. If you see that, <laughs> you're going to, every toxicologist on the planet is going to be that person's anticholinergic. So tachycardia, dry mouth, and that neurologic thing is really it. And you can read your textbooks on dry and you can listen to bowel sounds. I never listen to bowel sounds. And you can check armpits. I don't really check armpits. Sweat matters. And that's the other thing people will talk about. Sweat matters for one reason. If, you're, if you've got somebody who's writhing all over the bed and all over the place and won't sit still, which sometimes the anticholinergics are, um, they sh they're exerting themselves. They should have at least some sweat because that's how you can regulate your body temperature. If you've got somebody who you're tying down or, or con having people to hold down into bed and they're dry, it's more likely anticholinergic. See, and then here's here's where I'm going to deviate a little bit from 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 uh -oh. Dan. So Spooky, no, I mean, baby. I I still am legally allowed to touch patients. So <laughs> I um I I find I find that some aspects of of that exam are are helpful it, when 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 it becomes more of a question of of subtleties. So you know the anticholinergic pupils are when they're present. There are a few things that are. Uh, that produce that kind of a picture. So you are paralyzing the constrictor. So you can't constrict your pupil as opposed to a sympathomimetic pupil where you are stimulating the dilator, the constrictor is intact. So if you shine a light in, sympathomimetic pupils should constrict and anticholinergic pupils should stay big uh, with confrontation with light. Now, it, when it's like that, there are very few things that that do that otherwise, um, unless they, you know, they just came from the ophthalmologist and it's not related to the drug they ingested. The, the sweat thing is people make, um, constitutively, they're making some degree of sweat. So if someone comes in, I, I do take a gloved emphasis on gloved hand <laughs> and, and run it through either their axilla or their groin, because there should be some moisture there. Howard, you need medical students, Howard. Um, I, well, I see. I work in an urban city hospital, so you know I, I don't have the rich resources that you have uh, out out west. So um, if you pull, you know, your hand gets stuck because it's it's dry. Uh, then that is again, it's more information. It's it's a little bit more detailed information. Now, that being said, people who are sympathomimetic can sweat themselves to the point where they are dry where they don't have they, they no longer have any sweat and so th these are again not any one thing that you hang your hat on but like dan said you know the altered mental status the tachycardia and the phonation is the other thing one of the reason why people have this very characteristic phonation uh with when they're anti-muscarinic is because they don't have saliva and you can't you can't form words if if the system is is dry so uh it, it's a really it's a very interesting it's like the worst cotton mouth you've ever had um and the hobo you know when they're very anticholinergic they go <laughs> while they're picking and staring off into space but the picking behaviors are very 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 uh prominent um as well hmm. i can't wait to pick that up i i i did not know that so that's that's a good pearl there thank you Matt's going to walk into the ER and just put his hand in everyone's <laughs> armpit. See? 
Make a name for yourself. <laughs> and now have a reason to do it. It's, <laughs> it's just a little less creepy now. Yeah. Chris, Chris, could you get us? Dr. just told me to do it. Exactly. exactly. Dr. just told me to do it. Oh, that doctor's putting gloves on again. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> for, the re- for the record, it was Howard Greller. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to go back. We, we sort of jumped right into um, like physical exam findings pretty quickly. You know, I, I was just wondering, you know, is there much use in, uh, in doing more of a history and like talking to the patient or calling the landlord and having them read us all the medications in the patient's medicine cabinet and things like that? Or do you just look at a patient and you're like, I sort of know what's sort of going on and, um, you know, we just need to know sort of these broad categories of what these patients have and sort of either treat them symptomatically or based on whatever small diagnostic testing you do, you know, do empiric treatment or something like that. I mean, is, is more history useful? Always. I mean, you know, history, history is, is sort of, you know, if you have it is very, very, very helpful. The, the caution, I guess I would, uh, say is, you know, you call the landlord just because they're reading a prescription bottle or a box doesn't mean that A, that that is what the patient took and B, that what's in whatever they're holding is what it says on the label. Um, So that's, that's the first thing. So, you know, a, a lot of times in the, my clinical practice, we'll get a patient that comes in with an overdose and they'll have the, you know, the ShopRite bag full of pill bottles going all the way back to when Carter was president. And, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it, you sit there and that's, that's when I get the medical student to sit there and, and catalog, but you literally have to open up every bottle and look and see whether or not the pills correlate. Um, and, you know, th- there are multiple different ways that you can do that apps on your phone. You can look online. If, if you don't have access for some reason to that, you can always call your uh, regional poison center and they can help you with uh, pill identification. Um, so that's helpful, but it, it doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what to do. And you still have to look at the patient and say, okay, here's a bottle of again, quetiapine, does the patient in front of me make sense for that ingestion? Or do I really have to worry that this is uh, an iron overdose? Are they presenting looking like someone with that? Does the physiology fit what I expect based on on the information I've gotten? Yeah, Howard's right. I, we, I'm the same way. The, the more information we can get, the the better, but not because we like information for information's sake. It really comes right. down to just what you said. It, it's about, does it make sense, right? The bradycardic hypotensive patient, what do they have access to? Oh, that makes perfect sense. Or the patient with, particularly with things like acidosis, right? You got a bicarb of 14 and you know, that's a pretty broad differential for tox and, and for internal medicine. And so helping to narrow it down a little bit and further testing is, is particularly helpful. So yeah, as every bit of information we can get, the better. But just like you said, you always got to take it and look at the patient. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example at, um, uh, Kislyak Hospital. What? Which hospital? Cashlack. <laughs> Sorry. Um, at Cashlack. Hospital, I was consulted on a patient uh, who presented and what they, you know, the the boyfriend or brother or friend, uh, 
intoxicated colleague that came with them basically said that they had taken uh, sertraline and I believe it was probably quetiapine. And the the patient was um, became had a cardiac arrest and then had return of uh, circulation relatively quickly after uh, some CPR and then progressively became bradycardic and hypotensive and had a physiology that was very, very consistent with either a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker poisoning and not anything that we would have expected from either Zoloft or or uh, whatever the brand name for quetiapine is, which I can't remember. Seroquel. Yeah, I don't like using brand names. But <laughs> so, uh, you know, again, it, it, it we got this information and they had pill bottles, but it did not turn out to be what was endorsed so right um, you gotta I guess always that leads to a question i have where it's i feel like i'm obviously the keyhole that i'm seeing this stuff through is very small but the two instances i think of that spring to mind are the patient either with intentional overdose where it's multiple pill bottles so they've maybe they got high on something and then took a bunch of diphenhydramine and maybe their metformin on top and then maybe there's some psych meds on board or you have the patient who's very old and it has altered mental status and they're on 74 different medications. And <laughs> so like when I, when I feel like I, I need a toxidrome that almost the water, the waters are so muddy. I'm not really sure where to start. What kind of, what is your approach when there is not a clear toxidrome or not a clear precipitant? Yeah, that's, that's actually, I think an often, Everybody. often the qu- the case. So, um, in the, the patient with all of the potential polypharmacy overdose, really it becomes about what we started with, which is the physiology, right? Do they have the physiological manifestations of anticholinergic? Is there QRSY? Is this related to a sodium channel blocker? Is the QTCY? Is this potassium? You know, we start really looking at physiology, and that's, again, the thing I love about toxicology is we're still one of the few professions that that found it important to pay attention in physiology and biochemistry, right? Because you can, you can apply all of that stuff and you can start to say, and, and the great thing about tox is that it's great to have a list of drugs, but it, in some ways it, if you don't, it doesn't matter, right? Cause you're ultimately going to treat the physiologic derangements that you see. So if they're, you know, if you don't know what's going on, you're going to get a basic, if their bicarb's low, then we're going to start running down the, very vast list of things that cause metabolic acidosis, right? Is it, is this a respiratory? Is it metabolic, first of all? And if it's metabolic, um, do they have other evidence of things like a toxic alcohol? Do we have an osmolar gap? And let's look at the med list. Is metformin on it? Let's get a lactate. Let's do serial lactates. Let's look at other. So the great thing about tox is that if we have so many things that it's impossible to narrow it down, or we've got such a mixed toxidrome, we just look at the patient and we just say physiologically what's going on. And the, the nice thing anymore is 90% of them are sleepy, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> and it, it fits. And, and honestly, that's okay because it fits into what we call sedative hypnotic overdose, right? This is a drug that works predominantly by causing increased inhibitory tone in the brain, right? It's not shutting off respiratory. It's not shutting off cardiac systems. Their basic metabolic panel looks good. This is, uh, let's get another cup of coffee and we'll round on the patient <laughs> tomorrow, right? This is, uh, let's, as my colleague would say, let's, this is metabolized to freedom. Yeah. A patient. The, the thing that you really hone in on are the, are the abnormalities, right? Um, bradycardia, uh, hypoglycemia, hypertension, tachycardia, you know, things like that. And then we treat the physiologic manifestations. 
Yeah. So I, it I, is useful to have a list, right? Sure. And the elderly patient on 100 medicines, you know, the problem is your differential is much, much greater. Um, the great thing about tox is it's often the diagnosis of exclusion. So you're still going to do everything else, right? You're still going to rule out the stroke. You're still going to rule out you know, sepsis and in the infectious causes. And, you know, we get to walk out to the family and say, if it's their medicines, and oh, by the way, they're on 15 of them. So it's probably the medicine. And if even if it's not directly the medicine, they're on too many medicines, and it's not helping. <laughs> right? The good thing is that by stopping them, they're for the most part going to improve. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. The the fact, one the the phrase oh, that I always ahead, teach. Oh, sorry. The phrase that I always you know teach my residents and and when I had fellows is you treat the patient, not the poison, right? And you focus you focus on what's in front of you rather than than the information which often can can lead you astray. Um, hmm. And you know, there's not who doesn't love a drug holiday. Right? <laughs> well, and, and and actually, I and Howard, I think you would, you'd companies. echo this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Purdue form. The, the most important thing a toxicologist often does is say this may not be tox. Right. Because that's the other problem that we see a lot is that it is really easy to anchor on tox in a patient with mental illness and prior overdoses or in an old person with 100 medicines. or And not to – and it's not their fault, but EMS sometimes will give you information that will lead you down the, we found this patient, we know this patient, they're a drug addict, this is a drug overdose. Well, Howard, I have seen, I've seen serotonin syndromes when we tapped them, they had Frank Puss. You know, we've all seen, I've seen a sympathomimetic syndrome and a 15-year-old who had a big pulmonary embolus, right? And it, it, you have to be careful. So sometimes the best thing about a toxicologist is that we are good at sometimes saying, it might not be tox. Yeah, that's a good point. Chris, I, I want to plan out the rest of our time here. I was, I, I would like to talk about like pre-hospital or arrival, like GI decontamination. I'm, I'm trying to understand if that's a thing that people should do or if that's, if that's the right terminology. But Chris, how do you want to use the rest of our no, time? No, I agree. I think uh, we, you know, I think we're able to break out of our thinking of just thinking of toxidromes and. Uh, we've discussed about um, looking at each different symptom and trying to treat that. I think it would be a good time to just start talking about treatment and you know how would you, know, you sort of uh, talked a little bit about it, um, but um, do you want to? Can you get? Can, well, I, I think we could set this up with a, a quote from Seinfeld. Uh, I so I was a big sign or I still am a big Seinfeld fan, and I know a lot of our audience is too young to know Seinfeld, but I don't care. This one's that's for, not true. This one's for me. Hulu, Hulu is bringing it back. <laughs> My sixteen-year-old daughter is a huge Seinfeld. Fan. Okay, it's that's a so. George, I'm, I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the so Kramer. There's one episode of Seinfeld, and this is the first time I ever heard of this medication. Kramer comes into Jerry's apartment. And he's like, "Hey, Jerry, you got any Ipecac?" And Jerry's like, Ipecac? Kramer, I really think you guys are going too far. And then Kramer's like, no, Mickey, he swallowed 12 aspirin. And Jerry's like, did he overdose? And Kramer's like, no, it's it's just too much. So that's, <laughs> that's the first time I've ever heard of that. And I wanted to I know. I have to tell you. Yeah. Go. So apropos of Seinfeld, I've been literally, before this episode started, I've been looking for an excuse to use the phrase Shanghai Sally the entire time. And I, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not come up. So this is probably my only chance. 
Fantastic. So, gentlemen, uh, I, yeah, I wanted to talk about the whole GI decontamination thing. Is that even a phrase we should be using? And and what does it mean, um, Howard? I'll ask you. Is what what are, <laughs> where's the thinking on that these days? All right. So so you, it's like you you just stepped into the crypt in Raiders of the Lost Ark with all of the snakes. <laughs> okay. Um, right. So there there are a few uh, topics in toxicology that have more passionate partisans on on either side. Okay. So and and the primary problem and the primary issue is this. In toxicology, it's really really difficult to study something where you have to either poison someone or not poison someone, right? It, it IRBs don't kind of look kindly on, you know, poisoning versus not poisoning. Hmm. So, it's really tough to find answers to problems where either a they're very rare or b uh the the differences that you are looking for are very small and gi decontamination is is one of those things because of the the heterogeneity of the exposures and the also of the patients my my personal i i'm i'm a person and i, I know dan is on the sort of on the other side of this, but I'm, I'm a person that believes in some decontamination from a, a more of a philosoph- uh, philosophical standpoint. My, my thought is that if we're able to, if someone gets exposed to something that we know is going to derange their physiology in some way, if we're able to either prevent absorption of that by either getting it out or getting it through, or locking it up so it can't interact with the body, then we have the potential to reduce harm. Now, again, that's that's philosophy of GI decontamination. The how you do that and the when you do that and the who you do that is very, very, very unclear. And the the limited information that we have, like most of things in toxicology, comes from a lot of animals and very few human studies and human studies that were done in a time when there were things that were not as bad as some of the things that we worry about now. Um, is that setting a level playing field, Dan, do you think? Reasonable? Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I, okay. I absolutely. So in, in terms of, in terms of the, the different things that we can do, there are a couple of different things. You can get something out that's in, so you can make them either vomit it, or you can pull it out. So that's either forced emesis with something like Ipecac, or you can uh, lavage, you can suck out, suck out the poison, right, with a, a big tube, if you can do that. Um, you can push it through quickly so that, right, you know, you think about the, the human body is a, is a giant torus, right? We're a donut. We have uh, a, a central tube, which is contiguous with the outside world, Right. The GI tract has just two holes. Right. It's connected to the environment. Um, If you can push it through that tube without it getting absorbed, then maybe you can prevent it from doing whatever it is Um, or like a Corona. Exactly. It all comes back to coffee and donuts. Um, Or you can do something in order to bind it up in some way. And that can be uh, charcoal. It can be some other binding resin. It can be some antibody. It could be some anything. Um, Krispy Kreme. There you go. There you go. So uh, choosing how and when to do it is is a very um, difficult thing. 
pre-hospital, I think that uh, that question sort of um, has been answered for us because Ipecac really doesn't exist much anymore. It's not being produced. It's not being marketed. The groups that were being told to use it previously, so parents with kids, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics no longer recommends that. They now recommend having home for what? Fraternities, sir. That's right. Fraternities. Yes, I'm or sorry. Anyone who I, watched Family Guy. Family Guy, <laughs> yes, right. That too. That's um, a great episode. <laughs> every lecture. Um, Bye. <laughs> <laughs> nothing yet. Um, so, you know, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics recommends now home charcoal as opposed to Ipecac, and that's been for over a decade. Um, so pre-hospital, it's very unlikely and very uncommon that uh, someone will ever get any form of decontamination, with the exception of maybe charcoal. Um, Looks like and then you can when order a syrup of Ipecac on Amazon. It's good. Of course okay. you can. Of course you can. <laughs> you can get strong. Right? You can order crystal meth and synthetic fentanyl. cannabinoids. Right. You can get fentanyl. You can get anything then, online. Yeah, I mean, ba- how much money does Steve Bezos have? It's because he'll sell you anything. <laughs> a well, there's thrower. a dark web. There's a dark right. web now, too. You can get anything you, you want online. Exactly. Pretty sure you can buy the flamethrower on a regular web. Regular <laughs> but web. But I digress. Yes. No. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean... It, it, Pre-hospital, I don't think that necessarily uh, there's a role unless you're maybe, you know, on an oil tanker in the middle of the ocean and and there's going to be a lack of care. You're, you know, an Antarctic scientist, um, something, you know, where where there's going to be delay in uh, in getting evaluated. Um, but then then it comes to then it comes to the 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 difficult questions is is to whether or not, you know, people need any kind of decontamination at all. Um, so I don't know, Dan, I feel like I've been prattling on, so they've got cherry flavored. Dan, okay. could you comment yeah. on the, the mecha, does the charcoal bind, is it binding the medication? How does it yeah. actually work? Yeah. So Howard's right. This is, it's funny too, because if you get on Twitter, there's occasionally a battle amongst toxicologists <laughs> as to <laughs> whether GID contamination works or not. So, and there, we're all over the spectrum, which is great. It's the thing I love about toxicology is that everyone's right. Nobody's right. You know, um, so charcoal works the same way if you put it in somebody's stomach that it does in your Brita water filter, right? It's the same way if you go camping, you know, you pour dirty water in charcoal has got a huge amount of surface area, lots of pores, lots of things stick to it. Dirty water goes through a filter, comes out clean water. And the same concept is, well, if you've got a bunch of pills that are dissolving in the stomach and you throw some charcoal in there, then as the chemicals are released from the matrix, that is the pill, then they're going to bind to the charcoal and they're never going to be absorbed. And we know it works in the sense both are your Brita water. I mean, every kid has a science project where they've got sand, dirt and stuff and they pour dirty water in it. I mean, it's the same concept. Um, we also know it works because if you take medical students and you ask them to take sublethal doses of things you can measure and <laughs> you give them charcoal, lo and behold, less of it gets absorbed. So it, it's not a it's not a question of whether it has the theoretical potential to work. The real question comes into is who should you use it in? And for from my standpoint, I I sort of follow four steps to decide on charcoal. Right. The the first thing I decide is what they took potentially life threatening. 
That's that's really a simple thing, but it often is overlooked, right? Some somebody takes twenty over the counter ibuprofens. That sounds like a lot, but it's not life threatening, right? They might get an upset stomach, and but it's not life threatening. If somebody takes forty uh, verapamil, you know, extended release, that that's potentially life threatening. So the first question is, if I know what the exposure is, is it potentially life threatening? The second thing I will look at is, is the pill or the substance still likely in the stomach. Because once it's absorbed, once it's dissolved, or once it's moved on through the small bowel, charcoal is no longer really going to be effective. It, it's uh-huh. only working by being in the bag. You know, it might help a little bit, uh-huh. but yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll let you argue later. Uh, but for the most part... Wait, you get wrecked? I, uh, yeah, yeah. I like to see, is the thing still within the stomach for charcoal for the most part? Um, and for... You know, nobody really knows how long things stay in the stomach. The general recommendation from the academies is one hour, right? And that's based on normal human physiology. If I give any of you a pill, it's mostly absorbed within an hour, except, except for the exception of some of these uh, either controlled release or extended release formulations. Um, I will usually go up to two hours, but if it's really something horrible, sure, maybe any time because what, what the heck do you got to lose? Um, the third thing, thing I'll look at is, is it absorbed by charcoal? And there's all the mnemonics. Most things are, to be honest. I mean, even metals, which we don't give it for, if you look at it, and so most of them are, have some absorption of charcoal. But like, really, if the substance is more toxic in the lungs than in the stomach, don't give charcoal. So hydrocarbons, you know, acids, bases, alcohols, things like that, we don't give charcoal to. But for most pills, they'll absorb uh, or ad, adsorb, I should say. I keep saying ab, ab. It's ad. They'll ad. All the toxicologists listen to this are gonna. Send <laughs> All right, it's scorpion bite. Take that, toxicologist. <laughs> I just pissed off everybody I know in Phoenix. Sorry, yeah. sorry, Phoenix friends. I didn't mean that. Um, so you know, anything will absorb to charcoal. The last thing I'll look at is what's the aspiration risk of this patient. Right, if the patient is really out of it and sleepy. Well, number one, the drugs. Are absorbed already, right? It's already in their system. So the likelihood of changing things is probably not that great at this point anyways. And B, charcoal in the lungs is worse than nothing in the lungs. So for me, I look at those four things. And the the one thing I will say, though, is that the, the ER, and I, I love my colleagues in the ER, we're very dichotomous because it's a crazy, chaotic environment. And we have gone to no charcoal in a lot of places. Like, I never give charcoal. I never give charcoal. That should not be the approach. The approach should be, this is a potentially life-threatening ingestion. We should consider decreasing the absorption. Maybe we'll decrease the probability that this person has a fatal event. And I've heard this from Howard, and I agree with you, Howard. Like, even if it's only decreasing the absorption of 30% of a drug, right, clinically maybe not that – but that might be the difference between survival or not survival in a really bad overdose. So you've got to – this is the art of medicine. You got to look at the the patient first. All right, now Howard, you can go off. Can I can I just counter a couple things? Please do. Okay. So number number one, I, if, if there's one thing that I can try with my with my my dying breaths to try and eliminate from the the toxicologic lexicon is this is this one hour anything rule, um, which is I. I think is a is a gross misinterpretation of one of the first and and probably the best done uh, GI decontamination study that we have from 1985 with Ken Kulig. So it, there is no magic about 60 minutes. 
right? And there's a, there's a lot of evidence that sort of knocks this down. But the, the first thing is, is that that interpretation, right, the people that were in that study that were um, the sickest were taken out of the study and they were they got the the decontamination modality that was the mainstay at that time. They had their stomach pumped. They had lavage. Just because you come in at 60 minutes, right, at 61 minutes, does that mean that you're any different than if you came in at 59 minutes, right? This is, it, it's, it's just, it shouldn't be a hard and fast rule. The second thing is, Dan was talking about stuff being in the stomach. And there are some good studies that were done. I, I want to say Japan, but I can't remember the specific author, where they did endoscopic studies of people yeah, who took, it was Japan, where they did endoscopic studies where they took people who took large amounts, right? They, they obviously, again, they're not poisoning these people, but they took large amounts of pills. And then they did serial endoscopies to see what was left in the stomach. And things that you wouldn't expect to change gastric motility or gastric emptying. So things that were not opioids, things that were not anticholinergic or, uh, you know, change the gut motility, motility in any way. So things like acetaminophen, right? They found pills 48 hours later in the stomach, significant amounts, right? So in an, in an intentional overdose, stuff is still going to be in the stomach, the third thing is that charcoal is has two properties that make it sort of um, special. It it has uh, at least for cer certain substances can participate in two kinds of enhanced elimination. So uh, one is called enteroenteric recirculation, and the other one is called enterohepatic circulation. And the the two best examples I can give of that enteroenteric is essentially you take a drug. It gets absorbed. It's in the bloodstream. You put charcoal in the gut, and the gut membrane acts almost like a dialysis membrane, and it pulls drug from the blood into this charcoal sink. This was very nicely shown in a study where they gave volunteers IV aminophilin, which is essentially a precursor to theophylline. They measured then serial levels and the half-life of the drug. Then they took those same volunteers, gave them the same dose, along with oral charcoal. So IV drug, oral charcoal, and the half-life of the drug fell by more than half. So pulling the drug from the blood into the gut. So there's that. Now, what drugs are amenable to that? I mean, theophylline seems to be one. We don't necessarily know because, again, it's something that's difficult to study, especially with things that we really worry about. The other one is the enterohepatic, so things that are uh, recirculated in bile. Uh, carbamazepine is a good example of that. So it's absorbed, re, uh, excreted in the bile, reabsorbed. And if you can break that uh, recirculatory cycle, potentially you are enhancing the elimination of the drug and getting rid of it. Um, so that's those are two, again, additional properties that, that weigh in, at least in, in my calculus on this. And then the last thing is that, you know, now there's a, like everything else, the pendulum swings. So in Australia, uh, their most recent guidelines, I think from a year or two ago, about acetaminophen ingestion, right, Tylenol, uh, paracetamol, depending on who's listening, um, Typically, we don't think of needing to give charcoal to people 
who take acetaminophen overdoses because we have a generally very effective antidote and a good way of approaching the problem. But they're using this as part of their initial evaluation of an acetaminophen in order to try and prevent people from needing antidote. So by blocking absorption, you may not ever get to a level that's of concern, and then you may be able to shorten their, uh, their duration of, of, of therapy. Um, so again, every single patient is going to be different and every situation is going to require thought, but I, I, I'm not an absolutist, but I, you know, there's a lot of, I think there's more to decontamination and just not enough study. Like, I guess, like most things. We should have warned you. <laughs> well, I guess that sort of brings me to my next question. You know, so you did talk a little bit about antidotes. You have a next question? <laughs> did you not learn your lesson? How many, parts, how many parts? How many parts? This episode. I'm sorry. I just I love talks. Um, you could tell. Uh, us so I mean, time. we do have. You talked about antidotes, like for acetaminophen, and we have some antidotes for like benzos and things like that. Like how you know you talked about how. We don't always know what people ingest. How often do we are, are empiric treatments employed, like without actually knowing what they have? Oh, um, I mean, it depends. So, naloxone is employed in everybody before they get to my hospital now. Right. So that one's done. I mean, I, I like to joke that when I started in in toxicology in '99. If we had a heroin overdose, I would grab the medical students and I'd say, come with me, come with me. This is going to be really cool. We're going to give naloxone. You know, and, and EMS is just, and police have taken that fun away from me. Like, <laughs> yeah, everyone's already gotten naloxone. So, I mean, everyone's gotten that one. But to be honest, that's it. Um, I never use fulmazenil. And I shouldn't say never because there are examples and I can give you scenarios in where I would use it. Sure. But I rarely would use flumazenil. And the reason is that the overdose of a benzodiazepine is far safer than the withdrawal of a benzodiazepine. Albeit, withdrawal is rare with, you know, most people get flumazenil aren't going to develop status epilepticus. I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that it happens to everybody. But the overdose is pretty easy to manage, and and I don't want to put somebody in withdrawal. And since so many of these are polypharmacy overdoses anyways, the benzo is often the beneficial part of the polypharmacy. I overdosed on my Ilbutrin, and I overdosed on my Alprazolam, and oh, great, the Alprazolam, at least for a short period of time, is helping to decrease the probability of seizures. So I never empirically would give flumazenil. I do not empirically give um, physostigmine. I don't think many of us do. It used to be used pretty empirically with all overdoses. I will use it selectively in the patients I believe are anticholinergic, but not in routine overdoses. Um, so really, to be honest, I think naloxone is it. The only other thing I could see is, yeah, is glucose and occasionally bicarb. I And I will say this for your audience. Bicarb is the one antidote I see used most inappropriately. Yeah. Um, mm. And it's interesting. I And I think it's just because, you know, I study rocks all day long, right? And and I say this to people all the time, like, wow, you toxicologists are so smart. It's like, no, it's not that we're so smart. It's like, look, if all I did all day long was look at rocks and stare at rocks, I'd know a lot about rocks. And toxicologists, that's what we do. And so we forget sometimes that it's complicated. And so, like, the, the number one thing I see a mistake in is that somebody will have an EKG, which everyone should get with an overdose, and they'll have a QTE or QTC of like 510, and they'll get put on a bicarb drip. And of course, for, as a toxicologist, I'm like, no, 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 no. 
Um, we use bicarb for a wide QRS from drugs that are what we call sodium channel blockers. Tricyclics being the, the classic prototypic example, local anesthetics. So many drugs prolong QT. The problem is that people forget sometimes QRS and QTC. And if you give bicarb to somebody with a wide QTC, it lowers their potassium, which does what? It pro- prolongs, <laughs> yeah, the QTC. prolongs the QTC. And I see that a lot, actually. I don't know about you, Howard. I see that a whole lot where they, these things get sort of stuck together in people's heads. So bicarb, I see given kind of empirically a lot for patients. I, I wouldn't give it empirically. I would give it to somebody with a wide QRS, and I define wide as greater than 120 milliseconds, who particularly has hypotension or I'm worried about it being related to an overdose. In that setting, yeah, I, I would give bicarb. But but empirically, naloxone and glucose are about the only things I see. I'm not sure I fully followed the physio- the physiology of the sodium bicarb, the QTC. You're saying if the QTC is already prolonged, you don't want to give the bicarb because you might lower the potassium and and widen the QRS complex, or sorry, and widen the QTC or make the QTC longer. Sorry, Long. yep. I should better explain this. So the. the when we look at QRS, a wide QRS, greater than 120 milliseconds, what a toxicologist thinks in their head is sodium channels in the heart are blocked. And if we go back to that cardiac physiology and the med students who listen to this will know that right away, you know, you got that phase zero, that rapid upstroke, that are fast opening sodium channels in the heart. Drugs, and there's almost uh, there's almost every drug can do this in large overdoses. There's a lot of drugs that will block those cardiac channels. And when they do, it takes much longer for depolariz or for that. Well, you block some of those sodium channels in the QRS, which corresponds to that phase zero is going to get wide. Right. And so we give bicarb and we use this word inappropriately, not because it's bicarb, but because it has sodium. Right. So you got a sodium channel blocked. It, we're looking at a QRS, which is the manifestation of it. We're going to give sodium, and that's because it's just competitive. If the sodium channels are being blocked by a drug and we put a lot more sodium at that channel, then the probability that a sodium ion goes through the channel is greater than the drug blocking it. It's just a numbers game. Whoever's there in the largest numbers is going to win. Right. So a QRS to us equals sodium channel blockade. A wide QT or QTC are from drugs that prevent potassium from leaving the cardiac cell or potassium efflux. So they're different physiologically, they're different problems. So a wide QTC has nothing to do with sodium at all. But QRS and QTC sometimes get merged together in people's heads. They see one of them wide and they give bicarb. So the sodium bicarb is not going to help a QTC because it's not a sodium problem and it's not a acidosis problem, right? So the only thing you're going to get from giving bicarb to a long QTC is you're going to potentially lower their potassium, which will make the QTC wider. So you're actually making the problem worse. Did I cover that right, Howard? Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, normal saline is 0.9%. Hypertonic saline is 3%. When you give sodium bicarbonate, the typical amp that people are giving is 8.4% sodium. So you're giving a huge bolus uh, of sodium. Um, and when you're looking at the, the intervals, the QTC includes the QRS. So 
when you when you look at it, you need to say is the QTC prolonged because the QRS is prolonged, or because that QT segment is is prolonged, um, wow. and it could be both. Uh, and sometimes it's difficult to, to tease out which is which. But uh, when we're worried about bicarbonate, we're worried about s- uh, active or dynamic sodium channel blockade, um, and and we're looking to see if we can overcome that. Fantastic, thank you. And, and when Howard's spot on too, the one other thing I'll mention is it's the bolus that matters more. A lot of times I'll see people with a QRS 160 from a tricyclic overdose, and they're going to put them on a bicarb drip. The problem with a bicarb drip is you're getting I mean, you, normal saline. A bicarb drip is the same amount of sodium as yeah. a bag of normal saline. Like it's not a big, it's not a lot of sodium. The sodium's the solution here. The bolus is great because it all hits the heart in one big package. And so you get this massive bolus and all the sodium hits the heart because it's right there in the vascular system, right where you pushed it. So it really is in the wide QRS, particularly in the hypotensive patient, it's the boluses that matter. You can put them on a drip if you want. It's like a little Boy Scout kind of <laughs> preventing stuff, gives you something to do. But it's the bolus that matters. <laughs> One, that's a great explanation. Thank you. I wanted to just ask a follow-up question about, can you uh, tell me... Uh, Dan, you tell me why you hate tramadol, and Howard, you tell me why you hate Wellbutrin, or Bupropion is the generic. Uh, Ilbutrin is the better name. Ilbutrin. Uh, Tramadol. Um, We hate tramadol as toxicologists because it doesn't, it's no better than the problem we already have, and in many aspects it's worse. The problem we have is opioids. And the addiction related to opioids and the withdrawal related to opioids and the abuse related to opioids when we're talking about drugs that treat pain. Tramadol, I feel like when it first came out, was like, hey, this is a non-opioid for pain. Really, it's not. What it is is a SNRI. I and I steal this from David Urlink. It's like venlafaxine that the mm-hmm. body then converts to an opioid. Yeah. So it has the same problems that an opioid has. It's high abuse potential, has a horrible withdrawal. It has a bad overdose potential. In places like Egypt where you don't get overdoses and where they're like genetically they convert venlaf- or tramadol to an opioid a lot faster, it's the number one abused drug. Right. So it doesn't solve the abuse problem. It has bad withdrawal. And on top of it, it has so many drug drug interactions because it's an SNRI. Mm -hmm. And I know that you guys never see patients with chronic pain, pain related (laughs) conditions who are also on antidepressants and who are also taking Mm -hmm. trazodone for sleep. I know that you never see those patients. And so, you know, it. It doesn't solve the problem we have, and in many ways, it's it's as bad or worse than the problem we have. That's why I hate it. And because nobody understands it pharmacologically and they don't realize all the drug-drug interactions, it is often inappropriately prescribed to people who are at high risk to develop either serotonin syndrome or other related problems to it. Excellent. You hit the point I wanted to hit. <laughs> the one point I wanted to make. <laughs> <laughs> And actually, that you guys had a great episode with Dr. Yerlich uh, about tramadol. It was, I think people should make sure they check out that episode because you guys talk about it a lot more there too. Yeah, no, he was, he's amazing. Howard, tell us why is it called ilbutrin? Because uh, it, it's just terrible. <laughs> um, I, all right. So, to, so just from a, a purely chemical standpoint, bupropion is a bath salt. 
It's a synthetic cathinone. So it is, it is, uh, if you guys, I don't know, in your practices encountered the bath salts or saw the news reports about people, you know, eating faces and, <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, human zombies. A yeah, a few of those, right. It's just, it is just a, it's just, I don't know what problem it's hoping to solve other than, you know, increased stock prices. It <laughs> is, and I know that I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. And again, mm. I, I'm writing one right now to you. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's fine. It's fine. It's so, so here's, here's the one thing, my perspective, Dan's perspective, we see all of the adverse and bad consequences of every pharmaceutical agent that's out there. Right. And we see patterns. So we don't see the success stories. We don't see the people right. whose lives are changed because they stop smoking because they're using this. And, and I understand that. And that's fine. But from from the perspective of someone who just sees very bad things and then has to deal with someone who has taken too much of this very bad thing, mm -hmm. it's really it's a scary, scary drug. So if if it works for that particular individual, for that particular condition, you know, go with God. Wonderful. I'm not trying to take anything away, but from the perspective of a toxicologist, this is a an antidepressant with uh, sympathomimetic properties, which causes seizures and myocardial right. uh, is arrhythmias and dysfunction, and it affects the gap junctions in the heart, which makes it extremely difficult to deal with dysrhythmic problems from it. Um, it is a scary, scary drug, and people die from it. And uh, it's very difficult to manage. So my my biases come through with that. Um, but I, I, I'm when I hear of a bupropion overdose in my practice, that's when, you know, it's an extra tightening of the sphincter. I don't know, Dan. What? No, I, I, I don't like Ilbutrin either. Like Howard said, nobody ever consults us to tell us the drug's working well. So, right. I mean, I think that's a valid, <laughs> well, that's right. a valid point. But from an overdose standpoint, it's bad. My biggest beef with Ilbutrin, in addition to those things, is it shouldn't be the first agent for depression. No, it should not. Right. Yeah, abso I mean, absolutely should not. And it often is now. Um, it is a basalt. It's an stimulant. It's an amphetamine. People like it right. for the same reason they like amphetamine. So your patients are going to like it. It's going to cause weight loss and all those other kind of things. And also they should know can trip the urine drug screen for an amphetamine because structurally it's a synthetic cathinone, so it's just like an amphetamine. Yeah. But but it should not be the first agent used. Yeah. And I think as as PCMs, we need to take it upon ourselves to make sure we're following up with those patients too. And unfortunately, loss to follow-up is a huge issue and probably leads to a lot of you know, a lot of your patients that you see in the ER. I wanna I wanna wrap up here and Ask you gentlemen. What? We're going to wrap up. Well, I think we got to do a part six, two. I'm not six sure. Six-hour podcast. <laughs> my, We're only at an hour and a half right now. My guess is your downloads are going to suggest maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is going to be the Ken Burns of podcasts. Yeah, this is your jump the shark. That's right. No, you jump the shark on this one. <laughs> now, would you guys be willing to come back for more? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's uh, yeah. So that's that's the show, and thank you so much for for coming on the air with us. This is great. I I know you guys don't think the audience will like it, but I think they're gonna like it. <laughs> uh, you have a great you have a great podcast. Props to you guys. In all honesty, you guys have a great show. And episode seventy six is my all time favorite. Is that uh, pneumonia? Is that <laughs> no? It's the one you gave us a shout out to our oh, guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. 
It sure has. <laughs> Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You Yummy. can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food, and you will receive a wonderfully done PDF copy of the show notes with facts and figures. And uh, also, you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Tell us what you love or hate about the show. And we have pages on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, at Dr. Watto on Twitter. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, at Brigham SK, here with... I'm Christopher Chu, at CJ Chu on Twitter. And I remain Paul Nelson Williams. Do not follow me on Twitter. I believe it's uh, at Paul N. Williams with a Z at the end. If you that's That's the right one. Right? Meaningless eponym. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to want to follow Paul on Twitter. And good night. <laughs> <laughs>